Hey everybody, Sean here. I just wanted to leave a quick message before this episode starts to let you know that for some reason, my audio is terrible in this conversation. Everybody else's sounds fine, so I'm sure the problem was on my end, and I think it's listenable, and it was a fun conversation, so I definitely didn't want to scrap it. I cleaned everything up as best I could, but go ahead and enjoy that, uh, I guess, wet-wired classic sound. I have, like, the thesis that um, St. Louis is, like, entirely unique because it's the same as everywhere else. And, like, it's like a monad in that, like, it will organically create uh, perfect metaphors, but of stuff that maybe, like, the rest of the country doesn't want to see. Like, the probably the most pertinent example is like Mark McClowski standing on the porch of his mansion pointing a gun at Black Lives Matter protesters with his wife with like mustard on her shirt and shit and just like the disheveled bourgeois like pointing their toy guns at uh, you know a righteously indignant (laughs) protesting population that like that sort of became the iconic 2020 summer visual for a lot of like the protests because St. Louis is like a place of real extremes. And then it also has like some sort of like eldritch horror buried in the DNA of it that like attracts. Uh, I think it's like, I don't know. I'm, I have like a different thesis on it every day, but like the one that's striking me recently is just how much St. Louis is like a pass through for immigration populations. And the people who stay here are in this medium range of not hopeful enough to get to California and too much of a loser to hang out in New York. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Wetwire. I'm Sean Onis. And I'm Julian Paul Butt. Today, we're joined by journalist Devin Thomas O'Shea. Do you like to be called journalist? Do you prefer writer? Uh, it's a toss-up. I don't really like a lot of journalists, but either one works. So I was going through, I mean, I, I, I had already read a bunch of your pieces, and then I went through and I obviously, you know, like I wanted to be prepared. So I read a whole bunch more. So I, I feel like that I, I really have absorbed your entire oeuvre. Nice. <laughs> oh, yeah. Somebody's got to do it. Except for the, the last couple. The, you know, so it's like I started deep. Oh, nice. <laughs> but you've been published all over the place, like way more widely than I thought you had at first. Yeah. I Like I first encountered you at... Um, I think it was because you were uh, you were a guest on another show, and I just thought you know it was such a great episode, and you you know like what you had presented was so well put together. I really enjoyed it, and then I went and read some stuff. And but you you've been published in the Nation and in Slate, and the, the place that I encountered you first though was in Jack. Yeah, I don't know. I don't even know what order I want to approach things <laughs> yeah. because I just have I have all these things going on as far as like thoughts about uh, you know things I wanted to talk to you about. Well, like, well, Jules, have you have you consumed everything I've written? 
Because if you haven't, <laughs> then we can't talk about it. We need to be all three completely informed. You're, you're, you're not a true O'Shea head. Yeah. Gotta, <laughs> I'll show myself out. You do get a challenge coin if you read everything and prove to me that you have. I've read a few things. I'll, I'll get my flattery out of the way up front so we can have just an adult conversation. But you are really, you are, you're really a good writer. Thank you. I read things all the time. You know, I'm constantly reading, and I, I see your St. Louis roots. Obviously, are very strong, and and the and the the topics that you're choosing, the stories that you're choosing to pursue. Yeah, but somehow you also manage to pursue these stories that have like a direct they, they directly comment on you know everywhere from coast to coast in this country. Right. You know, you're talking about things that that are coming up in these St. Louis based stories and, you know, that are entrenched in St. Louis history that have this wide reach as far as the implications of the story. It weaves together an international thread and, and even a often a historical thread in the articles that I've read that, that give context to the situation that I would have, at least for me, I would have never expected that, that uh, is, is surprising in a very wonderful way. I mean, some of the topics are not as wonderful. So no, there's a lot of bad shit that's happened here. Yeah, and I, that, that's that's one of the things that I was I wanted to ask you about. It kept coming up is like, what is going on in St. Louis, <laughs> and is it just St. Louis, or right. you know, can this, can the same experiment be done in other places? And it just happens to be I I sort of I stumbled into into this particular wormhole and got wrapped up in all this stuff by, by reading their pieces. Yeah. I, you know, I, I don't, I don't know. I, you know, like I've been wondering about that. I've been, I've been considering, you know, the idea of the, the, the intersection of the railroads and the Mississippi. Right. I've been thinking about the, the time when the, when St. Louis like really grew and, and you know, in population. Mm-hmm. At one point it was what, like one of the fourth biggest cities in the U S or something. Right. Yeah. And at one point, it was one of the larger cities in the country. And the and so and that was largely an immigrant population. And so you had the mixture of new people with people who had been established there for some time. Right. I strongly assume that this is something that you've thought about as well. But what, what, would you, what do you think about, you know, like make St. Louis sort of maybe possibly unique in this way? Yeah. I mean, I've thought it to fucking death, just like. I mean, it's, it is in like everything I publish and sort of like, I mean, I have like the thesis that um, St. Louis is like entirely unique because it's the same as everywhere else. And like, it's like a monad in that like it will organically create uh, perfect metaphors, but of stuff that maybe like the rest of the country doesn't want to see, like the probably the most pertinent example is like Mark McClowski standing on the porch of his mansion, pointing a gun at black lives matter protesters with his wife with like mustard on her shirt and shit. And just like the disheveled (laughs) bourgeois, like pointing their toy guns at, uh, you know, a righteously indignant (laughs) protesting population that like, that sort of became the iconic 2020 summer visual for a lot of like the protests because 
St. Louis is like a place of real extremes. And then it also has like some sort of like eldritch horror buried in the DNA of it that like attracts. Uh, I think it's like, I don't know. I'm, I have like a different thesis on it every day, but like the one that's striking me recently is just how much St. Louis is like a pass through for immigration populations. And the people who stay here are in this medium range of not hopeful enough to get to California and too much of a loser to hang out in New York. So like, and that's been true for like 200 (laughs) years. So it attracts like a very unique set of like, elite bourgeois people and then it has all of these immigrant populations like the germans who wanted to found like a utopian society in the missouri rhineland you know they wanted to come here and turn it into the new um you know fatherland that was going to be a breadbasket and uh produce wine and all the stuff And then there's a giant series of exoduses of black populations from the South that all come and have to pass through St. Louis, basically. And the reactions that the white population has to that, which is severe of, you know, don't stay here. And the people who do end up being the most stubborn and resilient and also the victims of like some of the worst American atrocities of the last hundred years or so. So I don't know. I think it's also just the arch is like a satanic symbol that uh, <laughs> it's a, it's a legitimate portal. Yeah, it's like a it's like a go a gateway that is invisible on our spectrum, but like if you had demonic <laughs> vision, it would just be like spewing hellish uh, goo everywhere or something. Uh, Turns out it's one of the artifacts that is documented by Torchwood. Yes. So, uh, exactly. <laughs> so, so we could just go visit it and find uh, <laughs> find Doctor Who, probably. Yeah, exactly. There's like uh, Cahokia Mount. It's also an insanely old city. So, like across the river is one of the oldest Native American cities that was like mysteriously abandoned, um, like 400 years before. Europeans even got here and like um, nobody really knows why, but this has always been like a location for people to settle and uh, yeah, evil and secret shit happens here. And then there's the other thing of just like medium sized cities don't really get a lot of attention. So I also agree with what you were saying, Sean, which is I suspect that you could do this exact same work. And I think people are doing it with like, Cleveland or Cincinnati or Indianapolis or uh, Memphis. Like there's all of these little Midwestern city histories that no one really gives a shit about unless you can like tell it in a compelling way, I guess, which is what I'm so good at and why I'm such a talented author. That's why you're such a talented author. Also just very lucky. I've most of those publications come through like, I mean, just like any writer, a bunch of editors had to like take a risk of like, and I still, you know, I'm still fighting those battles. Mm-hmm. And You know, I think since we're, uh, we're sitting here on the eve of July 4th and the, uh, and you, uh, you, you did just, uh, just mentioned the, uh, 
the, the Midwest Rhineland. Oh yeah. The, like I was wondering if like one of the things I really wanted to talk to you about was the St. Louis commune. Oh yeah. We are considering, we are coming up on this anniversary and I was wondering if you, if you would mind, you know, like just telling us a little bit about it, because I think that I have this in common with a lot of people. This is not an, uh, piece of history that I, that a lot of people know about. I certainly didn't know about it. And it was absolutely remarkable. And it seems to have become, I don't, I'm not sure if you were the, the the first piece that was published in Jacobin talking about this, Mm -hmm. but I, it it seems to be something of a, uh, of a, uh, of a yearly event for them now that somebody else is writing something about it almost every year. Yeah. uh, Mark Kruger wrote a, a whole book about it. Uh, which is pretty good. Um, And yeah, it is. uh, Basically, the story is that in like 1877, which is not usually, I mean, in the history of St. Louis, as it's like told in some textbooks and like nonfiction, just like doesn't make any sense. It's like the gravitational poles of like stuff that's happening in the city don't line up it's just like hard to wrap your head around like well there were natives here and then there was a little skirmish about it and then we got rid of that and then we were riverboats and mark twain and then like uh flash forward we were going to be amazing and then it all fell apart and now we're just like the violence capital of the united states but like um in the 1870s like St. Louis is supposed to is has the potential to be Chicago. And in some people's minds, like Chicago times three, um, it's just like the intersection of the steamboat, which will never go away and the railroads. And then any highways that are going to happen have to go across the bridges. So there's this big node of transportation as Sean, you were saying, um, uh, and the railroads become like a major source of labor unrest and like the railroad barons of the Gilded Age, basically, you know, the capital contradictions heighten in the summer of 1877 to the point where the railroad lines from St. Louis all the way to the East Coast all up and down erupt in gigantic organic worker protests. There is no railroad union really. It's just people are ground down. People are suicidal over, you know, a line will get built and then go away and just terrible working conditions, hardly imaginable to us today. Um, And uh, Eric Foner's father or uncle, Philip Foner, uh, who's also a labor historian, wrote about about this railroad strike, arguing that in St. Louis, because of this little detail that happened sort of at the seventh day of it, uh, where the Belcher sugar refinery um, goes and asks the worker commune that's been running these like five day long strikes of guys wielding coupling pins in the streets, marching up and down, trapping the city fathers in the four courts buildings through parade, not threat, but this very successful worker action that completely seizes up the city. The Belcher sugar guy goes to the commune executive committee and he asks, Hey, can I keep making this sugar? Cause it's all going to go rotten if we don't like do some sugar stuff to it. And uh, the co- workers are like, yes, go ahead and do that. 
And that means de facto you are the governing body in St. Louis because the business. Yeah, because you you were asked for something and you were the one that was viewed as the authority. Yeah, and that's it. That's a revolution, basically. <laughs> like as soon as yeah, the business class. That's a completed class, revolution, yeah. Yeah, as soon as the business class recognizes you or the military turns over like sovereign control of a territory. So unfortunately, that only happens for about a day. Um the other unique thing about this strike is that it's like a multiracial coalition where white and black workers, white workers who get the railroad jobs that are slightly better than working on the Mississippi Riverboat dock, um, both are able to see that they have more in common if they strike together in a big general strike along with the Coopers and all these other, uh, you know, cowboy industries. Um and it becomes the central dividing line for like the newspapers to put a wedge between them. Of they say that the black workers are way worse than the white workers, and that they are trying to cause absolute destruction to the city, and they have to be stopped. And it's just like the playbook for the next hundred and fifty years, basically. And this is right after Reconstruction, too. This is this is literally within years that that we we have Union troops pulling out and 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 going back home i mean that that is that is the setting for this a lot a lot of historians call 1877 the year it ended like the freedmen's Mm -hmm. bureau was recently broken up and so like and we start the gilded age which is just monopoly control and unchecked you know in St. Louis, you can see also how this works with like the Veiled Profit Society that then erupts out of the you know panic of the commune, which is always described in like other stuff as like, you know, it was just a little strike and nobody was really scared. But like they were threatening to turn off the water to the mansion neighborhoods and a bunch of the rich guys fled to their like farmhouse second homes. Like they left the city. Yeah, and then like people were filling bathtubs because they were worried that their water was going to get shut off. Yeah, which they should have just done. They should have just shut off the water. They should have just done it. And they should have pulled yep. the you know Missouri Republican editors, the conservative, just pulled them out of the building and just sent them on a rail car somewhere else. You know, but alas, I, I was reading a, a connection to. While this is broadly compared to the Paris Commune, I was reading about the idea that there is a connection that is much more direct to the Paris Commune, which uh, and 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 some other events in in that time and place coming from Europe. We were talking a moment ago about how there were so many immigrants at that time; something like sixty percent were immigrants or something like that. Oh yeah, largely German and a lot of French as well, and they're coming in off the heels of the 1848 revolutions, right. which were influencing uh, the, the working men's first international. And, and I mean, just so socialist revolutions and groups throughout the world. And uh, uh, that some of the people who were there in St. Louis were specifically from these experiences of fighting revolutions in Europe and, even the Paris Commune, which only lasted like a little over two months, right? But but I mean, the Paris Commune was in 1871, and so we have people coming off the heels of this landing in St. Louis, and they're not going to all of a sudden <laughs> be cool with capitalists. Yeah, 
and uh i is there did you find did you find uh, some interesting notions about the the european connection where where we had people coming off of these revolutions yeah the uh i mean the in the 48 revolutions which is where you know marx and engels and all of the german sort of um revolutionaries have to flee Germany afterwards because the revolution fails. The monarchy is the power of the monarchy is going to become invested in the bourgeois class. And so all of these guys scattered to the winds, including there was just like, it was just really cool at the time in Germany to travel to America, write a book about it and then suggest that everyone should come here too. And like in Missouri (laughs) specifically, there was just like a a really good propaganda effort that was like, get your shit together, get over here. And we're going to just like, we're going to take over this entire Midwest place is just like the center of Europe. It'll be the exact same thing. And so after the 48 revolutions, there's a huge wave of that, um, which is also, I think St. Louis was, somewhere between 60 and 70% like Irish and German. The French are actually the really old money. They're like the people who set up the first. Interesting. Yeah. Log cabin and just like Pierre Laclede and Auguste Chateau. And they are like the, they form the blue blood cluster at the center. That's still visible today in certain family lines and stuff. But, uh, yeah, the the Germans end up keeping St. Louis in the Union during the Civil War also because they despise slavery. They see the plantation class as the exact same as the monarchy, an unjust, decrepit, incestuous, just um, you know, pitiable class of people that are leeches on society and like Compared to people of the day, the German populations everywhere have slaves that are like 1% are slave owners. So like the worst guy you know from the immigrant class, he's a son of a bitch, but everybody else is in agreement that slavery is bad and that this is the potential to found a utopia, a a real communist utopia. Um, And so the... 1877 Great Railroad Strike, you know, flash forward 10 or 15 years after the Civil War ends, is sort of the last hurrah of a lot of those 48ers because um, the people who are energized by the Paris Commune are going to come to St. Louis, participate in the thing, and then get out of town once it fails. But for the the Germans who are staying in St. Louis, that's sort of the last hurrah or the last attempt to do it. And after that point, you see just a giant drop off in like, there's a lot of newspapers that are very important to like the union effort here that just sort of go away. And the German immigrant presence here gets really beaten down and sort of scrubbed away. It's only sort of visible now in like a bunch of statues that are in one of the big parks here. Um, yeah, so it's really strange. It's like it's a conspiracy also. There's like a, there's a weird retelling where it makes more sense to imagine the city through the lens of 1877 being this like black hole around which everything sort of like orients itself rather than, you know, well, we were doing good and then we would, you know, 
went down or, you know, then we lost a railroad contract and Chicago became the big city in the Midwest. Totally flattened with all the, all the important details removed. Yeah. And it's completely flat and doesn't make any sense. There, there, there is a tremendous amount of activity happening at that time that, I mean, over a period of 20 years, so much activity. And then it, it almost, withers as we encroach on uh, on the 20th century yeah where uh i mean we we had the first international workingmen's association with with uh you know a few guys have heard of karl marx uh I know that guy. <laughs> and and of course mikhail bakunin yeah and and their split happened in 71 and then we have uh, 1886 where we're having the origins of may day in chicago and and the eight hour uh, struggle, and and then we hear almost nothing after 1890. It's like it's like the bicycles invented, and socialism is gone. Yeah, for 30 years. Unless you're sort of like in the IWW, that's sort of like the wobblies and like itinerant worker populations, basically in America at least. In St. Louis during that time, we're doing the World's Fair, baby. We're like doing a human zoo. We're taking all kinds of populations <laughs> from all over the world and putting them on display. Like, hey, check it out. Uh, so, which is also representative of like in the aftermath of the strike, there's a huge consolidation of power amongst rich people because in the Gilded Age, another way of thinking about it is just like it's another 1848 revolution that fails and the power that was vested in the old system just goes to the bourgeois class. Um, and they are like, well, we're going to do a big fair. That's what we're going to spend all our money on and getting prepared for. And there's not a lot of worker activity in St. Louis until, um, yeah, like the 1920s, but then especially in the thirties. And then right after the, you know, to, we're basically commemorating the, uh, the, the, the crushing of, the St. Louis Commune. That's when you have the first Veiled Prophet Parade. Yeah, it was a great time. And 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 so, like, what was there? I mean, was this something that was just um, manufactured at that time, or was it something that was uh, was you know was was sort of already kind of like the the building blocks were already present, but it just hadn't been configured in this way? Yeah, I mean, well, you were talking about my gigantic slightly boring thesis about like the Ku Klux Klan and the aftermath of the civil war. But like at that time it was just like the coolest shit you could see was a parade. You know, everything is hopelessly boring and normal. There's no such thing as like even going to a theater for most people. And so if a bunch of people just parade down the street in costumes, that shit is electric. Um, and in the aftermath of the Civil War, I mean, parades in America are always very important culturally. It's a way of communicating to illiterate people what the order of things is because you're using very abstract. Everybody loves a guy in a crazy costume, too. Oh, yeah. If he's dressed up as <laughs> Uncle mean, Sam and he's executing a railroad worker, we get the message, you know? Exactly. Like, Just look at the Q shaman. I mean, that guy, he's on fire. Yeah, I mean, it still does work. It's like the theater of it is very, uh, we're not that much different. Um, but that's basically no. what happened was uh, there, 
Before the Veiled Prophet Parade, there was the Agricultural and Manufacturing Fair, which was very exciting. Because that sounds thrilling. Oh man, think about like a cotton gin. Whoa. <laughs> shit <laughs> and then like is a, this a what firework. people did before tiktok i've been wondering this whole time yeah it was like seeing right. cotton gin and then like the sexiest farmer daughter you've ever seen dressed up as like uh persephone you know on like a big float <laughs> bonnie tableau. mcmurray yeah it's just <laughs> she's so hot um but <laughs> so in the veiled prophet parade there's a bunch of different floats They'd basically just take over and parades are also a way to get these knucklehead farmers from the hinterlands into the city to spend some cash. And so it's like a big event, you know, to drive people into it, see the new cotton gin or whatever. Um, but the Veiled Prophet Parade, like the symbolic architecture of it is the Veiled Prophet is a guy who is coming to town announced earlier in the year to shoot striking trolley workers. He's got four straps. He's got like a gun in the background of the stamp and then two pistols. And I got in a big, big online argument with this deranged old man uh, about this woodcut. Uh, this is like minutia in the research area, but George Grange is just he insists that this woodcut with the clown with the guns, that's just a big misunderstanding. And in fact, that woodcut, you know, because newspapers didn't just make a woodcut whenever you needed one. They reused them. And I found documentation way before the Veiled Prophet ever hits the newspapers that they use this woodcut to talk about clan activity in East Illinois or in Southern Illinois months before the Veiled Prophet. So one of the motherfuckers in the Veiled Prophet Society just said, use the clan woodcut and call him the Veiled Prophet. And he's coming to town to murder these trolley workers because they're getting out. That's of old school. That's old school wow. stock photography. Exactly. Stock photography. You ever heard it? Yeah, <laughs> it exactly. There's like a watermark yeah. on it. Um, wow. <laughs> but uh yeah, so then it just becomes this cultural thing. And the first one is pretty obvious. It's the Veiled Prophet, and he's standing beside an executioner with, like, a butcher block. And they're parading through the worker neighborhoods. So, you know, we can put it where, together. Where did they, where did they get this, uh, The you know, the, the particular, like, the elements of this this whole, I don't know, this whole, this, what, what, is this, the what is the symbolism the behind, I mean... Yeah, the costume and the the name veiled. What's what's being veiled exactly? Well, it's a mishmash of stuff, starting with like the clan, which in the aftermath of the Civil War, there is an even earlier form of terrorism called shrievery. And this comes to us from France, where you basically somebody is not doing the right shit in the village, everybody puts on a costume and they go outside their house and they play bad music. Uh, and sometimes they drag somebody out and hang them. And sometimes it's just like a little friendly warning. And then sometimes it's to celebrate like a marriage. So very dynamic little cultural element. But the clan adopts charivery and the costuming for it, especially with a steepled hat, which is called a capuchon. And that is meant to uh, make fun of priests from the 1600s. So 
mm-hmm. all of this shit the, is the, the, the capuchin monks yeah yeah it's just like it's just a bunch of historical detritus that they all put on there's even this whole interesting thread about like the kind of fabric they were using at first that was like mocking to new york polite society and so the veiled prophet having a a conical hat and like a veil and then like robes is that's a Ku Kluxer for sure. Um, before our idea of like the Ku Klux Klan comes along and then there's a whole book of poetry through, thing. Is this, I, I want to ask about that. Is this all coming through um, with, you know, with the, the history and the tradition with the, like some of the Mardi Gras costumes in New Orleans? Yeah. Is there a connection there? Yeah, there's a bunch of like um, similar like the if you go if you go and watch the Anthony Bourdain No Reservations episode, I highly encourage you to do the episode that's Cajun Mardi Gras in Louisiana and they do a chicken run, which is sort of an evolution of a charivari. But it is like that whole notion that during the Sharivari, we dress up in costume and we invert the rules of society so that the king becomes the mm-hmm. fool and the fool is the king. And in that way, you can make fun of priests. You can thumb your nose at a merchant that you owe a bunch of money to. You can also, if you're a humiliated white male southerner, reinstate the plantation uh, authority that you lost during the Civil War, which is what the Klan uses it for. So it's like a, um, yeah, very rich symbolic thing that we still kind of have in all of our, you know, Call of Duty fascists costuming shits and like during protests and a protest is a parade. And, you know, there's a lot of um, a lot of this stuff seems foreign, but it's actually, I think, very uh, relevant. Well, and it definitely has some resonance with, you know, the idea of this sort of, you know, the MAGA costume parade with the idea that, you know, you have like a, a lot of the, a lot of the body of those, of those, of those MAGA rallies are people who are some of the most disadvantaged economically yeah, and yet still clinging to some sort of a connection to power. Right. And, you know, based on, you know, in, in a lot of cases, just because of the color of their skin. And that that becomes like the, the only thing that they have left to attach themselves to, you know, some sort of like an idea of a ruling class. Yeah. And of dressing up with an AR-15. I mean, it's like, I even think that the Shriveries of like the 1840s were a little more artful and they're like, I'm going to dress up sort of like a rogue or like, I'm going to dress up like a crazy priest and invert things this way. Whereas ours, current milieu is like i'm gonna literally strap up like i'm a soldier and sort of cosplay a serious role in the community which i cannot find in my daily life you know i'm gonna or yeah, instead of uh or instead of a torch uh, get some tiki's uh, from yeah, exactly. your local costco yeah <laughs> yeah i think you're being generous when you say that the uh the, the previous uh the previous expressions were more artful <laughs> and somebody knew and somebody needed it Somebody needed to know how to sew those costumes. Yeah, that's true. There was actually. It's not done now. No. It's all off the shelf. <laughs> yeah, it's. Uh, I don't. That would have taken hours and hours. But again, not a lot of shit is going on. Parades are just like electrically interesting. Yeah. So you got lots of time to plan. So, I mean, as a, 
you know, as a response, I mean, the like the people who were making up this the the this, the failed prophet society. Mm-hmm. These were really the these were the wealthiest people, the ones who had been most embarrassed during the during the St. Louis, you know, like this, the railroad strike, and then the the one day of the St. Louis Commune. Yeah, you know, so uh, is this is sort of you know this is their way of announcing their you know their their I guess reascendance to their station. I I really think so. I mean, I don't think it's any more complicated than that because. They, you know, there's that whole thing. I'm sure you guys have encountered it lots in like just study of historical Marxism where somebody will make the point that like the ruling class exhibits a tremendous amount of class solidarity. It's the working class that is always fractured. And that's true. But in the 1870s, you know, if you're in St. Louis, you were on the perimeter of the empire. The California doesn't necessarily exist anymore, and the hinterland in between St. Louis and California is even more up for grabs and chaotic. And so there's a little bit of an unsettled... There's also this thing in St. Louis where (laughs) it was French, and then it was Spanish for a little while, and then it was American, and there was some Revolutionary War shit here, and there's always this conflict with Native Americans that are both integrated into and then cast out of St. Louis. So like it's a shifty place. It's not necessarily nailed down like New York city is for the Puritans or something like that. And, um, the bourgeois class, I think in the lead up to the railroad strike could not get their shit together. And that's why it happens that like, if you can't, you know, if you're really putting on your authoritarian hat, it's like, if I let the entire city get shut down for seven days and I can't crush the strike and I don't know who the strike leaders are and I don't have enough troops here to like manage it, then it's probably because a bunch of these other business owners are not playing the same game. And so there was like a big union Confederate split between a bunch of the aristocracy in St. Louis plus these old French people who are still have a lot of money and power and land and the Veiled Prophet Society binds all that stuff together. It just says, forget all that old shit. It's founded by a Confederate uh, cavalry officer named Alonzo Slayback, who's fantastic name. Um, yeah, that's, that's a, you know, the, the whole century was just full of good names like that. Yeah, just like, I'm, I'm just kind we of don't like... don't know a, how to name people anymore. No, and I'm just going to be Slayback. I'm going to be like Shredder for the frontier. Right. Um, but the makeup of the Veiled Prophet Society ends up being half Union, half Confederate, lots of Mississippi River uh, profiteers. And there's that solidarity that you're talking about. You know, they were able to even put aside this, you know, the fact that they've been on opposite sides of a very, very recent, very visceral war. Oh, yeah. And, And to see that they have more in common than they have differences in relation to the rest of these people. It it almost seems like the the kind of cultural hegemony that that uh, uh, Antonio Gramsci talks about, but the way that he talks about it as 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 something that is uh, basically all throughout capitalist society, uh, more in the background. This is this is almost seemingly a reaction to a lack 
of that class solidarity that is typically there mm-hmm. among uh, uh, property classes and and business owning classes that that they realized that they had to get their shit together culturally right. and have this unifying force because uh, in the first time in their experience the the working classes are having some work some solidarity and they have their shit together yeah. and it really made them scared yeah i mean i think that was a big it all fits together because you have the german population here that's very organized though they are very you know tight knit amongst themselves and they are able to encourage non-german workers to join unions and consider striking and then in the aftermath of this the Veiled Profit Society is like a hegemonic, you know, they are they get their shit together so well they're able to put on a World's Fair, again, in this periphery city. The city that has enormous potential, but is not quite as industrialized even as, like, the Chicago cattle yards will become a gigantic engine at this time to, like, blossom Chicago. St. Louis doesn't quite get that together by the 1920s but it looks like it could still happen based on river commerce and such st louis was told what i was told throughout all of grade school you have so much potential yeah i yeah what does that mean (laughs) we're trying i don't know usually followed up by something about my grades Mm -hmm. that's fair yeah so much potential (laughs) so so I want to come back to that, that go back to that poem, you know, that, that was the inspiration. Oh yeah. So, like what was so magnetic about this particular poem that it became the, the thing that everything else was built around? This is like one of the most difficult to like figure out research aspects, but like the poem is about the poem is written by Thomas Moore in 60 years before the Civil War starts, the turn of the second century, the 1800, like I think it's published in 1803 or something like that. And it's a poem. It's one poem in a book of three poems. And it's a parable about a guy in the Middle East. It's Orientalists. It is like during a fad of poetry from England where There is the beginnings of colonialism are starting to reach their little tentacles into the Orient, the other, the like beyond the veil, if you want to say that, into like, yeah, I know, right (laughs) Right on the nose. (laughs) But like this place beyond the Occident becomes this like really rich imaginative land for like, oh, I can go there. Or they can put everything in there. I mean, the they, 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 they did so for, crazy. for hundreds of years. Yeah. Yeah. For hundreds of years, they did that with not just the mistranslations and everything, you know, of, of text coming out of the Middle East and out of Asia. Yeah. But just the putting all of your imagination into this place that had, we. there's something perfect about that. You know, we know a little bit about it. Right. But not enough that we can say we understand it. Right. So we can add everything there. You know, it's like it's like you know those uh, the medieval uh, bestiaries. You know that would talk about the places where all these all these animals, these mythological beasts that people thought actually existed, came from. Right. And they just made it up. Yeah. You know, it, it was just a fertile ground to place all of your imagination. Yeah. 
It, it's the same reason that all the aliens are hanging out in Antarctica. Right. Or that there's like a we hollow We know just Earth. enough about it. Yeah. yeah hollow yeah. Earth, Admiral <laughs> Bird type stuff. Yeah. It does sort of chase that, like, you need a new frontier at all times. So, like, for the imagination to, like, build something new in. But so the Orient is that for, like, 1800s poets who want to escape English censorship. And the poem is a really fucked up story of a guy who calls himself the Veiled Prophet who's usurping uh, Islam and claiming basically to be a divine being. And he has a cult and they are doing uh, imperialist conquests all over the place in league with a bunch of other countries. And they're bringing all this loot back to the capital. And then the other countries see that the Veiled Prophet is in it for himself. And he sort of goes rogue and he captures this princess. And there's a heroic warrior guy, uh, Azim and Zelika. And the whole thing ends with the Veiled Prophet both unleashing a gigantic like spirit bomb like Goku onto um, a battlefield (laughs) and then retreating into his palace to order all of his followers to kill themselves because the barbarians are at the gate and then there's a big tragic irony thing at the end. It's all a metaphor for like England sort of doing conquest wars that are going to come home to roost and that like, Zelika is perhaps which was prescient, yeah, yeah, and accurate. It just took like two hundred years yeah. to get there, but but you know, or as the CIA calls it, blowback. Yeah, it is. It is like a. It's a poem about blowback, basically. <laughs> uh, it, it seems like some of that 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 nuance was lost, and in, in exchange for just taking on the imagery. Yeah, I mean. So this is weird because in the 1950s, when the Veiled Prophet Society is like at its peak power, they tell a little story about the Veiled Prophet as like Santa Claus who comes to town to like deliver prosperity uh-huh. to St. Louis. Because everybody who read that poem, Lala Rook, is dead because it was a poem that was popular in the last century. Nobody reads the poem anymore. And so they just get to get away with like... Yeah, the Veiled Prophet's always been a very beneficent figure, and it's not—it's not—he's not like the devil, but like in 1877, lots of people, or at least some who were able to read, uh, would have known that, like, oh, that's the bad guy. They made Jafar the king of the city, you know, as a direct threat <laughs> to like the people in the city. It's very and strange. You will have to kill yourself eventually. And none of this can end well, which is also weird that like the guys are like, let's do, you know, Jim Jones. Let's make him like the figurehead of our cult. Let's make him the patron of the city. Yeah. And we'll, let's make Jim Jones our mascot. We'll have a club with solo cups on the, as like on the front. And like, it was really, it's very strange. I don't know what those guys thought about that. I would, I would love to hear, but they, they were on board with it. I think they were like, well, it's really a Klansman, yeah. so don't worry about it. Right, exactly. That was that was the whole thing. It's like, yeah, the, you know, the story of the story, but, you know, it's it's obviously, you know, it's obviously the Klan, so we're good. Yeah, it's plus it's all shrouded in, like, male club secrecy, so it's like, you wouldn't understand. There's a, there's a big thing that unites all of it at the bottom, but you got to get through the seven layers of pledging before you can, like, really get to the hidden truth. 
what what was that? What were the seven layers of pledging? Uh, I mean, I don't know if they actually had. There is like oh, a pledging okay, process. Okay. Oh, but okay. it's like but, you know. So what, what do you know about that? What what the pledging process was? I have no idea. I'd love to hear what the initial versions were. It probably starts like every fraternity where it's like you got to run across a fire that, and then it turns into like okay, we filled a room with red hot coals and you have to stand in there for seven days or like, so this, this is something that they still manage to have kept fairly secret. They, you oh, know, yeah. it hasn't been disseminated. No, you know? the only thing I know so, is from like recent years where they have this whole Baroque, like weird structure. It's a, the club today is very different from all, back then. It was much more powerful back then. Yeah, I'm sure it was. And, you know, I mean, it's it's sort of, you know, it's a, a mid-sized city version of, you know, the, the what's the, the name of the, uh, the the ceremony that takes place in California that Alex Jones infiltrated? Oh, yeah. Um, oh, the, the Bohemian Grove. That's Bohemian it. Grove, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The cremation of care is what it is. Yeah, the big owl. And <laughs> the, uh, yeah, the big owl, exactly. And but, you know, so, but it is, it is very similar. I mean, it has a very similar aspect. I mean, that's obviously a much larger scale event and it has worldwide participation from, you know, the best of the best, you know, the Davos yeah. crowd. And so we got, we got to send in investigative journalist, Alex Jones to uncover this yeah, one. Reliable source, <laughs> Alex Jones. Reliable sources. Yeah. <laughs> it was a pretty great documentary though. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I mean, just as just, just raw kind of like gonzo journalism yeah, is ridiculous. He's doing real cocaine journalism, which very entertaining. <laughs> it's <pretty> cool. <laughs> I, I wouldn't call like a fact finding mission necessarily, but it was very entertaining. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so is, is this now there's also a ball that takes place. Is that annual? Yeah, that still goes on. That's the only thing that still goes on. Um, the parades. Because the parade is canceled as of, what, two years ago, three years ago? Yeah, I think that was two years ago now. Which is wild yeah. to, to, to think that that was something that I had no idea about but was still taking place three years ago. Like, COVID happened and yeah. that parade was still there. Yeah, it's it survived the entire Clinton administration. Um, uh, yeah. I mean, it's one of those weird things about St. Louis and maybe our media ecosystem that like things that happen in mid-sized cities like this just don't always escape, you know? And they, they get overlooked because they don't get national attention. And yeah. I mean, that, I think that is something that I, I, I don't know what to make of that exactly, but it is, it definitely registers as, as something that in, in the back of my mind, it just won't go away that, yeah. you know, that, and that that's like when I was thinking about how, you know, how you've had sort of, you know, I don't, I don't know, you might not call it the same good fortune that I think of when it comes to the, uh, the, the, the pool that you can draw your stories from <laughs> yeah the, the, you know, the, like being living in St. Louis, you know, right that there are these things that, that are, that are going on there. And like you said, you know, and I agree that probably in a lot of mid-sized cities as well that don't get this attention and so are able to just continue on because nobody's ever really put a light on them. Yeah. And nobody's really asked these questions. They have, People have grown up with them. They're part of the background and nobody thinks twice. I mean, I'm like, 
I, I grew up in, in Western New York and you had, you know, you had like three different Italian festivals. Yeah. And that was just how it was. Right. You know, so, and I never thought anything about the Italian festivals or anything like that. I never reflected on it. And I've left that part of the country and I'm now living in the Southwest. And the, nobody here knows anything about that. Right. You know, so they don't know what that's like to have, and you know, they, there's enough Italians in con- to concentrate to create this critical mass right. that explodes into a festival a couple of times a year. That's wild. For various reasons. Is it like Northern Italians (laughs) versus Sicilians versus... You know, I think based on the immigrant population, I'm kind of like, I'm I'm trying to like retrofit this a little bit probably. And, but I think it's mostly Southern. Yeah, that makes sense. Just based on where where people ended up in the U.S. that I, it just, it has that feeling, but I really don't know. I haven't looked back on it. Any, any of these things, if not for the fact that maybe it was so close to Manhattan, could have happened there that you're describing in St. Louis. You know, like Manhattan has a center of gravity that takes over the entire state for the most part. Absolutely. But, the, but you know, all, with all of these mid-sized cities, they all have their own individual things that they do. Yeah. And if, it, if, it, if the if the background of the city had been a little bit more colorful and it hadn't been totally focused on Eastman Kodak company, right? then it would be, there, there might be something else there too. I mean, it, it could have been the same, the same kind of ground available to build any of this stuff. Yeah. You know, but St. Louis had the French, like you said, and the Spanish, and then, you know, sort of a, a hot and cold relationship with native populations. And, it allowed all these things to exist. And I mean, New Orleans is, is an interesting case for, for its own reasons as well. Yeah. And it's just down river, you know, like the, and they're it's, very connected, be, and, you know, because of those influences and because again, of a very different like group of immigrant populations, it turned out in a very unique way. Yeah. You come from one of the places, very few places in the United States that actually has a culture of its own anymore, you know, like remaining, yeah, remaining culture. That's true. We for got, better or for worse. We got Nelly. We got the Arch. We got Provolone cheese, Proval cheese. I mean, a lot of the U.S. has been sort of um, consumed by this uh, this this very generic sort of appearance. Mm-hmm. It's it's absorbed into a, a sort of cultural homogeneity that happens from an almost national or international uh, entertainment culture. Yeah. Where well, architecture where, too. Architecture is another big part of this. Like, you know, and architecture. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure that you haven't been uh, you haven't been spared the the apartment complex development. Oh no, we got the Minecraft ones. Exactly, like with the with the you know the the two by two uh, steel uh, balconies and things like that. You yeah. know, like that, that sort of that sort of appearance. Yeah, yeah, and and I mean, when I was I lived in Oakland for a while, and I saw that stuff going up in, na- in a neighboring town. That you know, it's all one city in the Bay Area, but the you know, there's a town called Emeryville that has a very different development scheme. It's basically the local government in Emeryville is owned by developers, um, you know, the, and, and so they do whatever they want. Yeah. And there's no sense of maintaining any kind of like character right. or aesthetic or anything like that. And so everything is new, but by new, it means that you could see the same sort of development in West Paris. Right. Or in, you know, and out on the outskirts of Rome 
or in Chicago or in Jacksonville, Florida. Yeah. You know, like it all looks the same. It's, it's just fucking cookie yeah. cutter. And a lot of the reason that that maybe does, has not affected St. Louis so much is it's also like hundred years of decline, baby. Like the riverfront turned out to be a bad bet. Like, uh, it's impossible to even fathom St. Louis without understanding this huge inferiority complex that the city has about just like we were supposed to be good. Something great was going to happen here and then it didn't. And now it's over. And so there's just like a massive amount of decline. I mean, I remember it from my childhood of just old as shit buildings, different layer geological layers of different buildings falling apart, huge sections of, you know, uh, like, and then a giant conspiracy to like liquidate the black population starting in like the 1930s all the way up until the 90s of just destroying North St. Louis. Um, and, you know, now it's sort of just a weird feeling. I think, I think it's interesting to point that out that like there's this other architectural trend happening everywhere else that's like homogenous. Here, there's almost like a little bit of a pride in like the red brick and the French architecture and sort of like, yeah, we're a little funky and we got old stuff here without sort of engaging with the fact of like, yeah, that's because it's like all soaked in blood. You know, it's like there's a bunch of like pain and misery that happened here that produced all of this old shit. Um, And then it gets sold to like, you know, land developers and, you know devils and shit like that yeah and i th- i i wanted oh, uh, i i wanted to uh, uh give you a chance to talk about josh holly since you brought oh, him yeah, up absolutely <laughs> I, see that's why i said please no you sir yeah, you go yeah. through the door first because <laughs> <laughs> i read his book i read every terrible word some of them several you and times me are like the this is kind of a joke between Jules and I is that the, he, he over prepares sometimes. Yeah. And so we'll, we'll like, I'll want to like, I'll say, Hey, let's talk about Josh Holly's new book. And the fact that he's going on these like Christian men's tours and stuff like that. Yeah. And then he goes and reads the damn thing. Yeah. Damn. I, know. <laughs> I, I have the same brain. <laughs> But you have the same brain. All right. So you two have this in common. I'm the outlier here. <laughs> the, uh, yeah, I can't. Re- I mean, I'm sure the jewels would agree. It's like, was it worth reading every word? I don't know. It's, it doesn't seem, it seems like we expended more. <laughs> we put more energy into like reading the book than it seems like Josh paid attention to writing it. That was my impression yeah. pretty quickly. <laughs> I think I got through like two and a half chapters and then I started skimming. It's wild. It was, it was, I had the same, I had the exact same sensation inside after I did the same thing with DeSantis's book, Ugh. his most recent one. Jesus. Which I also read. This is not good for your brain, Jules. This is not good. You know, it's absolutely obvious that DeSantis wrote this book because it's terrible. <laughs> And I felt the same way about Holly. Like I got through, you know, I don't know, 20%, maybe 25% of the book and thought there's no doubt he wrote this thing. And I have more than enough material to go off of. I don't need to know what's in the rest of it. Yeah, definitely. I read it for uh, a protein magazine review that's going to come out uh, shortly. But like, I think uh, one of the more remarkable things about it, I don't know if you guys 
picked up on like, why is every young man who comes to Josh Howley for help does not receive any help? Like None. E- each, each guy is no like, yeah, that is a, that is a dry well that he does not know how to help people. It's just like, this kid's fucked. He doesn't, he can't come to class on time. Just get out of here. And what a tragedy these young men have. I, I don't, I don't think he has any interest whatsoever in no, helping anybody. Yeah. Nah, I got to go to Professor Howley's office hours because I love his class right. so much. <laughs> and, but the problem I'm having is that I'm also an alcoholic, right? So I can't show up to the class and be sober, but I'm pretty sure that I love the class. So will Josh Howley, <laughs> will Josh help me with this problem? And the answer is no. He like sort of just turns off of that little example and then goes back to like trying to roast Marx for being an Epicurean. Just a bunch of just. I don't oh, know. No, that 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 was a that was a particular thing that that showed up. That, and and he has been trotting that one out. That Epicurean liberalism thing. He has been dragging that out. I found an article from 2011 that he wrote in a law journal that that, rep, that used that exact term. I don't. I, he must have gotten that from somewhere. Somebody yeah, must know, have said that. Do you have any theories? I don't. But I it's, it's some professor or something like that. And right, right now, it's that that term has been referenced so often by people talking about Josh Hawley that it's just that his. It's, you can't you can't search for it anymore. Yeah, you know, like I, you know, I haven't done a Google Ingram search to see if anything comes up on that. Yeah, like maybe that maybe there would be something published that was before that. But I, I, I suspect that he had a professor in law school or maybe an undergrad that used that expression. Yeah. And I, like just as an offhand sort of thing. And it just sort of like it got caught. Yeah. You know, like it like a, like a, a feather in an air filter or something like that. And it just kept bouncing around in his head for, <laughs> you know, for the last 25, 30 years. And it's just there. You know, and not he can't. He I, can't shake himself out. I don't even think it's that it. sophisticated. I, I think it's much more likely like that he's trying to cough it he, out. Uh, he his idea of of liberals is is just an entire category of people who are uh, the most sinful hedonists you can yeah. imagine, and he wanted to come up with some phrase that was sounding more sophisticated than right. hedonist. So he he just did some kind of a uh, uh, related terms on Wikipedia, right. landed on that one, called it a day. I, mean, I, I don't think, I it's, think that's pretty. He really just yeah. He just reveals that he knows he doesn't have any idea what either of those words mean. Separately no fucking clue. Before he wedged them together, not a fucking clue. Or just like, like he's never like he knows the name. That there was a guy named Epicurus and. I think he liked to eat a lot or that was, that's the extent that is the limit right there. He doesn't strike me as somebody who went to class up. No, even though he attended Stanford and then Yale, right? Like, uh, I think it was, yeah, I think it was Stanford and Yale. Yeah. I think he graduated with a lot of degrees in Yale. Just another, you know, in case you needed another example of why Ivy league schools are just full of shitheads. 
Oh yeah, George Bush man, George W. Bush managed to get out of Yale with a law degree too. So absolutely, and he drank from he drank blood from the skull of Geronimo. So you know that's what gets you really through it. <laughs> he, he, he masturbated into the skull of Geronimo, oh, and that and he, and he still managed to get a degree. Yeah, God. I do think that's probably right. I think it's a combination of both. I think he heard it from a professor and then was also like, I need a different, I'm, I'm competing in the landscape of other right wing people who are coming up with catchy phrases that I love, like cultural Marxism. And I just want to get one in and get it like circulating in the Fox news ecosystem. And then everyone will think I'm the smart boy version of Trump and Buddy, that shit doesn't fucking work. You're you're not charismatic. DeSantis is learning that right yeah. now. <laughs> He's learning that <laughs> These very two well. Guys are, are they're not cut from the same cloth, but they're adjacent. Yeah, they're closely related to each other, and the just the ickiness factor. Yeah, that the more you hear them talk, the more you actually hear them speak, the less you like them. Yeah, it's it's a really funny dynamic that it's like the opposite of getting yourself out there. You know, like, the, like, you know, you think like, oh, I need to promote myself. I need to, you know, let people know who I am and what I have to say. No, not for DeSantis. But with these, with these two guys, though, it's like the more they actually expose themselves, not to like this very small, like niche population that is diehard, but to the broader population, the less they're liked. Yeah, it's really true. We've already hit the, uh, the, the limit, I think, for how much we're going to, uh, we're going to accept either of those two people. Now, yeah. it, now it is the uh, it's like the it's like Jordan Peterson. You know, there's a there's a whole lot of people who are going to um, continue to be entertained by the ridiculous things that he says. Yeah, and talk about him in that respect. Yeah, you know, they're they're going to push the limit of like the no bad press idea. Right. You know the because right now it's going to be yeah. all bad press. Yeah. Like the context in which he is scary or is talked about, Holly is talked about as like scary was like during the January 6th protests. And it was just a fist pump. It was a fist pump. And then it was like, oh, he's going to, he's signaling to all of the like groper or groipers online. And like, yeah. he's going to get, he's going to be like captain of the Proud Boys or something. But then in that book, you know, he just like, right off the bat reveals like, Hey, don't jack off. I fucking hate you if you're young. And also (laughs) don't play video games. You need a Bible. Yeah. That's not a winning. I went to lots of, I went to school with lots of like shithead right wing young people and they don't want to hear that. Like there's no audience for that. They want action. They want a fight club. They want to do uh, uh, gun cosplay. They want masculine fascist hedonism. Yeah. Yes. That's exactly what they want. You know, they want Andrew Tate. Yeah, exactly. And and instead, they get Holly. Right. And Holly tries. He's got the (laughs) t-shirts on. They're they're real snug. They're very snug. He's nipping out in those t-shirts, and we're all on board. (laughs) 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 Like, like, you know what? I usually wear a medium, but you know what? Let's try the small. Yeah. Let's, let's, <laughs> let's, wash, it in, let's wash it in really hot water and then dry it hot uh, right before I put it on. It ends up just making him look like an alien trying to wear a t-shirt. 
an alien in human skin. Yeah. Like, you know, this is how humans dress. <laughs> this is my wife, my companion human. I always knew he was a lizard person. It makes yeah. perfect sense. My wife, my companion. Like, this is this is where you get that real Mike Pence vibe. Yes. You know, I think within five, five ten years, he's going to be calling her mother. Yeah. Oh, that's going to be scary. I, the, the other weird thing... Maybe this is a phenomenon from where you guys are too, but like in Missouri, there's Josh Hawley and then there is uh, Lucas Kuntz and then there's also Jason Kander. And then there's sort of like these, they're all these young, very fit, like white men of military experience, but it just seems like they're mass produced out of a factory and you can just turn the dial one way or the other for like what they're going to be. They're all kind of overeducated and incompetent, but like seemingly normal. If you just don't hear what they're saying, I don't know. It's very strange. There, there is a strange pattern. I, I, this, I was going to say this a second ago about Holly, but it applies. Yeah. I, I don't know those, those, uh, those guys that you just mentioned, but, it, it it seems to like that that uh that particular I don't know that that combination of attributes. It seems like the only people who are really doing well are the publicists. Yeah, consultants. Yeah, and all of these people that are showing up and are like on the radar, you know, of everybody's attention. They're they're just you know they're going to come, they're going to go. Right. Some of them will resonate, and they're going to have they're going to find some kind of a niche somebody's going to end up doing kind of like endurance races and somebody's going to be the preacher and somebody's going to start. I mean, they're going to start talking about how Brazilian jiu-jitsu changed their life or something. Yeah. But the rest of them will just kind of fade away. Yeah. And they're all fine, you know, like, but you know, the few that find their places, they're going to stay in those little, those little nooks. Right. And, you know, Holly's different because he's a sitting Senator, you know, so he's got built in publicity aside from whatever he's trying to do. And the, so he's going to get some attention, but I mean, honestly, like uh, who knows how long that's going to even last. You yeah. know, like he, he is not the, 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 the next American Fuhrer. No, that was such a wild moment when all of that, like that panic was setting in, which really, you know, says a lot. I think about the way the media would just like grab onto something and just like, just push it until, it doesn't have any wheels. In it. Right. Is, you know, whatever, whatever publicist is representing him saw that this is going now. The media pushed it. Right. And let's see how far we can ride it. That's an excellent point. Yeah. Well, I'm sure these publicist circles are, are rotating from one to the other. Like Alan Greenspan was across multiple right. presidencies. They're here for the next one. <laughs> they don't give yeah. a shit. Yeah. So uh, if you had to give Josh Hawley's book, uh, how many stars? Uh, Four out of five. Give it a try. You know, <laughs> see if it. <laughs> I think it's like getting a little. I don't know. I think like one of the things is that publishing a book is also I mean, it's just like, it's a money grab, you know, the publisher printed seven pallets of them that went right into a dumpster that were bought and paid for. And like that just gets funneled yeah. back into the Holly machine. By some super pack somewhere. Yeah. yeah. It's just, it's pulp, whatever. It It's insanely dumb. If you need to be disabused of like, is this a smart person or not? But 
other than that, I just I find that shit so torturous. It's it's a noble feat that you all are able to read and uh, regurgitate just the worst. <laughs> The worst uh, political <laughs> writing around. <laughs> you should hear our Nazi homeschoolers oh, yeah, episode. That sounds great. Damn. Uh, you got to be careful with that stuff. It's like consuming poison. You know, you don't want to take too much of it in. Listen, I've seen the prince. I've seen the Princess Bride, and if there's anything I've learned about that, you just have to take enough over a long period of time to become immune. That's a good point. Yeah, I'm going to echo that. I think I'm fairly immune to this at this point, at least to the to the things that I know about. Now, there are going to be new poisons because people are developing them all the time. Right. I, I, I might become a victim to one of those. Yeah, it's more like I just don't it's it bums me out if I consume too much of it because I'm like, man, do a lot of people find this to be interesting? Because that feels alienating, like from humanity. See, that's the thing that fascinates me, though, is that people do find it to be interesting. I think it's only some people, though. I think it's a vanishingly few real number of heads. Yeah, I, I guess I'm like I had in my head somebody more charismatic and and, and was able to to generate a larger following than somebody like Holly. Yeah, I think Holly's whole thing is manufactured. He did that uh, that men's conference, the Christian men's conference, a couple of weeks ago or months ago now. Yeah, and that was a big event, but people didn't show up for him. Right, he was there as part of a larger thing. Yeah, God, that would be so fucking depressing to be him and just be like, I gotta attach myself to the fucking monster truck. Like, okay, <laughs> I gotta attach myself to this Reddit shit from 2007 in order to get in front of yeah. an audience. God damn. Yeah, like right after me is the BMX Expo, and we're delivering <laughs> similar messages. Yeah, uh, when you're when you're going into the convention and the people coming out of the room uh, are are also the alien conspiracy right. theorists. Uh, that's I'm a different kind of that guy. He must be able to just turn it off. I, I do think you're right though that like seeing him as more of like this is a guy from Yale who clerked for a Supreme Court justice and then became senator in a very easy state to become senator and like that's it. It's not, he's not the Fuhrer. He's not the next coming, whatever. It, 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 it is, it is absolutely the Disneyland ride where, yeah, I mean, if you look at it on the surface, you're in this car and this car is going these places and these, these animatronic beings are going to come out and spook you and right. say things at you, but you're on tracks and these tracks are going to a predestined yeah. arrangement. And it's not going to branch out. From yeah, that. I think so. I, th- I think that's a good way of looking at it is that we, we don't necessarily see that. I mean, I don't think I don't really fault anybody for not being able to predict that back in, you know, back on January 6th or anything like that. Yeah. But he's going to end up like a Chuck Grassley or something. I mean, he might get reelected three, four or five terms. Who knows? Right. You know, but he, but he doesn't. That's that's the end of the line for him is that seat. Yeah. And meanwhile, in Missouri, there's sort of like a laboratory of creatures being brewed still. So like, oh, it's real. there's a guy in the state. I mean, like Missouri is becoming very hostile to uh, trans people. And yeah, who would have thought? Right. Um, but Mike Moon is the name of the guy in the Missouri State House who is like the 
he sees the title of the most deranged man. He sounds like a guy from Twin Peaks, you know, like look out for Mike Moon. He is like he's a demented eldritch forest spirit. But he like he does things (laughs) moon. Yes. Like just like the moon. Uh, And he like goes on record saying that like actually child marriages are great because they never end in divorce. Oh, it's that guy. Oh, it's that guy. Yeah. Oh, no, I've seen that clip. I've read articles about this. I didn't make the connection. Oh, my uh, God. He's great. Yeah, this guy. He, he and he he goes on to talk about how uh, uh, how yeah well you know what uh, I I met somebody who who started with uh, mm-hmm. a child marriage and they're right. still In married and like he gives this anecdote that it's and it it sounds worse but he doesn't realize that it's not the point no, he thinks it's making <laughs> it's it's really yeah, horrific he's from um, the southern west sort of little corner of missouri where silver dollar city is and branson is so he's basically he's like in the theme park corner of missouri so you can only imagine what sort of like monsters are brewing out of that yakov smirnoff district exactly yeah that's the cool (laughs) district where everyone wants to move um but yeah it's like Holly is not necessarily a threat, but I also would caution everyone not to underestimate the sorts of lizards that can crawl out of, you know, Missouri politics. It's insane. So to people who are actually going to, but that actually might have some potential to later on be more, I don't know, dangerous, I think, I guess is the word I would use. They won't have a Stanford background. Yeah. You know, they're not no. coming out of Yale. They're, Bread in the streets. Yeah, the, that period is, is over. You know, we've, we've gone over the horizon from there. Yeah. And we're not looking at that stuff anymore. I think the last one that did the damage from Yale would probably be George W. Probably. You know, like the, and everybody who's going to come after this is, they're coming from someplace else. Now, or the military. They, they might have gone to Yale. Yeah. It's going to be this sort of, um, this, at least appearance of some kind of authenticity that you can at least caricaturize. Right. We're seeing some, um, some appreciation for that, like from, from DeSantis where he keeps talking as if he's from like Western Pennsylvania. Yeah. And you know, like the, he keeps bringing this stuff up like, Oh, I might be from Northern Florida, but my, my, my roots are there, you know, not really because my family has been here forever. And I'm Italian, but my roots are there in, in coal country. Everywhere is not right. Florida. He's got no but... connection to it whatsoever other than some sort of mindset that he's cultivated. Yeah. There's this Alec, uh, American Legislative yeah, yeah. Exchange Council, and Moms for Li- Liberty model of, of quasi-decentralization, yeah. where, where we're seeing some of the biggest damage being done not coming from the federal government, not not coming down from the office of the president necessarily. We're seeing a lot of the biggest damage uh, happening in in battles that are easier to win because they're on a smaller right. scale in in uh, uh, smaller mid-sized towns and things like that, where we find people like Moon doing exactly this kind of damage, and instead of doing this sweeping 
we got to get everything all at once approach. They've decided to figure out what works and then just replicate it in the next state over. And at the moment, that's a fucking winning strategy. Yeah, it's like the tea party. And 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 even Alec, Alec is even the more centralized version of that. But they're both kind of using that sort of quasi decentralized, but doing it at the local and state level model of the same shit being replicated. You know, um, a couple of years ago, maybe it was two years ago, Patrick Lyman, the, the guy that does the Tides of History podcast, yeah. he um, he wrote an article. It might have shown up in the Atlantic. I'm not sure, but it was uh, it was it was called the the American Gentry, mm-hmm. and it was all about these mid-sized cities across the U.S. that have their like basically like their aristocracy, their local, their landed gentry. Yeah. And they're, you know, these are the guys that, you know, they own construction companies or a, a half dozen car dealerships or something like that. Yeah. And you don't say like they don't they don't resonate. They don't show up on the news. They don't do anything nationally because they're local. But they also have, you know, fifty million dollars. Right. And they and they tend to be like strongly like uh, skewed towards conservative politics. Right. So this is like, these are the areas where, where, where you end up with a lot of, you know, this is like, this is the grassroots for something like moms for Liberty is donors like these people who individually are not, you know, they're not donating, you know, 50 million, like their own, all of their 50 million to a super PAC, mm-hmm. but they might give a million and nobody even knows about it. Yeah. Because it doesn't get reported and it's not, you know, none of it gets documented in a, in a way that gets, that ever gets revealed publicly. The organization is funded now. Yeah. And if there's any sort of alignment between, you know, one of these, one, one of these like small nexus and the next, then, then you really do have momentum. Yeah. That's a lot of money. Right. Uh, and I can look around my city in Albuquerque and I can see that, oh Yeah. You know, I, I know who these groups are, who these people are, right? you know, and, and I, I can only imagine, you know, what they're up to, <laughs> but they're, but there they are. And you see, you know, this construction company that also that's owned by somebody who owns six restaurants and, you know, and a bunch of other things. Right. And that's a lot of money. Yeah. And now they're investing in this, this giant shopping center with 150 units. Right. Yeah. Car dealerships are extremely, yeah, very politically organized group of psychopaths. And yeah, I mean, I think uh, there's also, have you guys heard of the Phil Neal book, Hinterland? No, I haven't. Uh, I just finished reading it and it was very good. But his argument is basically that like one of the new sort of dividing lines is not necessarily political but like the urban sprawl of like the international capital machine that sort of like doesn't have a nationality anymore that like the construction happening in rural china is sort of the same as like a lot of rust belt cities basically and that like the new alignments are now just about like even that local landed gentry is kind of displaced by this even more like for example in st louis there's my favorite is the 
Anheuser-Busch family that like gave up control of uh, the brewery to an international conglomerate in like 2008. And like... It's Bevmo, right? InBev, yeah. Uh, InBev, that's what it is. And now those kids, that landed gentry, they're just running around, but they're trying to get... They got an MTV show called The Bush Family Brood. So they tried to become famous as a way of like making up for like we got dethroned basically, but like trying to do the Paris Hilton yeah, thing. Yeah, well, again. they were trying to. I I think it was like one of them wanted to be Paris Hilton, but they also wanted to just do like a reality show dating thing. I don't know. It's really demented. Um, but yeah, I think there's like that landed gentry, and then like this other threat that they sort of have that's existential. That is like international commerce and the functioning of it that will also run into like climate change at some point. And then those fissures will be versus like uh, urban areas. And like, um, I don't know, he makes a really compelling argument about Ferguson here in St. Louis about how the radicalized like protest movement can't actually happen in a giant urban area. It has to happen in the suburbs because that's where like poverty is actually happening now. We still have this. That's where they live. That's where people live who are affected by these things. Yeah, that's where the new sort of like slum is, is a suburb more than it is like derelict buildings from the 1980s, which is still like a thing we have in our heads. It's a good book. And even the tentacles of power that that we observe have become almost so abstract and so interwoven. Nobody's at the helm. Nobody's at the helm. And I'm not even, I mean, even an AI chatbot would be better at the helm then who's then the nobody that's at the helm right now we've got we've got you know investment companies like BlackRock right. and, and things like that that are at the helm of so many other companies with a controlling share and yet that controlling share isn't necessarily guiding anything it's it's more the mechanisms of the structure itself that are guiding itself right. on autopilot so that all of the decisions are being made by a square peg only fitting right. in a square hole, but it's not necessarily that, that anybody's necessarily at the helm making conscious decisions anymore. We that's, that's like 20 years ago that that even was. A, no, a I think it's like Hillary Clinton and uh, like uh, John Podesta and um, uh, I don't know, Tom, Tom Hanks. It's just them three and they've got the whole thing under control. <laughs> no but i agree with you it is like it does it's funny because a conspiracy then comes and like invites itself in yeah it's like that's yeah. the kind of circumstance where a conspiracy is like invited it invites you to project something onto it but it's really it's nothing it's just functionings of like global weird algorithmic systems yeah it's great yeah. i feel very safe <laughs> you know our our attraction to i mean broadly as humans our attraction to assign you know to to sort of manufacture these connections and these deep conspiracies is i think it really just reveals how impotent we feel yeah that we we, we construct all of these things and because we were, we feel helpless in the face of the complexity of the situation, 
you know, not, not even, I mean, even just taking the, the power of these organizations and collectives of individuals aside, you know, these, these, you know, these at least temporary cooperative structures that are going to go on among, you know, like when we're talking about international capital, because they'll work together one moment and, and go against each other, you know, in a year. Yeah. And the, but setting all that aside, like we can't fathom how, how these things fit together. Right. You know, I think very few people can because we don't, even if we were exposed to all the inner workings, it would be so hard to detangle it and to see how an input here leads to an output over someplace else that we, we don't really see this cause and effect that we're kind of, we're geared to see, you know, from evolution. Yeah. We're looking for cause and effect all the time. And so we flatten these things down into this, this, this approximation, dimensional, you know, this, this, this sort of fantastical approximation, like it's very colorful, but it's also just like, like so over reduced in, in it to, to this simplicity, you know, that, that can't possibly account for what we're seeing. Yeah. You know, like we, we, so we need a villain. So we, we, we boil it down to this, like this villain that we can wrap our heads around. You know, there's something that we can that we can manage to to understand in some way. Yeah. Like Hillary Clinton or Podesta or something like the that. Illuminati. But the reality is is I you know, you can't grapple with it. It's there there's just there's too many there's too many pieces to try to figure out like what are you even holding on to? Yeah. I mean it's the same reason that we're we're so wired to be attracted to superstition. And if we don't have a su- superstition to make up a superstition that that if we were to assume that the rustling in the bushes was nothing and the wind, all of our ancestors that assumed that are very, very dead and they didn't pass on their genes. And our ancestors that assumed that the rustling in the bushes was a tiger and then it wasn't a tiger and they were wrong. Right. Lived. (laughs) And then when it was a tiger, they also lived. And, and we have this need to have, the the villain that is very definable and and concrete right there that we can that we can as you said Sean that we can grapple with and uh you know it's it's really hard to grapple with something as abstract as international capital in the way that it really operates and the way that the mechanisms and levers of power are actually operating on the ground in real life that uh, we need to have a tiger that's simple and we're we're immeasurably attracted to having a tiger even when it's just the wind. I completely agree. I think like there is a lot of, there's paranoia is good. It is productive. It's a, uh, it's a way of like, you know, thinking about stuff that is unknowable and constructing a pattern about it. But like, there's also a long history of the left constructing symbols like the octopus, which there's a poster behind Jules of the octopus as a symbol yeah. for capital entanglement, a sort of parasitic squiggly thing that gets its tentacles everywhere. That like is a metaphor that working people like wobblies would like write poems about on the sides of boxcars and stuff like that in the 1920s. Cause it's like, I have my wobbly card on oh, the fridge yeah. as we speak. Nice. But yeah, it's like there, there does need to be uh there's a pension quote that's like, 
the novice paranoid constructs a very robust they system, capital they system, to explain the world. But what's actually very important is that we construct a capital we system, that there's a counter paranoia and conspiracy of us versus this other thing that I think is like something that is systemically, you know, deadened in our imagination because of like capitalist realism and Mark Fisher shit and stuff like that. You know, a lot of people have remarked on this that, you know, they'll look at the conspiracy theory stuff and they'll say, oh, they were so close. Right. You know, like they, 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 they understood so much. They almost got there. And it's like, well, okay, that, that's true. I mean, that's, that's, I think that's a totally accurate observation because you have a lot of people who are experiencing things in a, in a direct way in their lives that they don't know exactly what to make out of them. Mm-hmm. You know, and so they, but the experiences are real. The suffering is real. Right. You know, they're, and so they have this sort of intuitive understanding that doesn't quite have legs underneath it yet to be able to, to, to take action other than just, you know, just outrage, you know, just screaming at the wind. Right. And that's what's going on at this point, or unfortunately in a firearm culture, strapping up and going to a target or something. Sure. And the, but like what you were saying is that, you know, the, it is, it is, it is useful and maybe even necessary to, you know, when you were talking about pension, to have an idea about what, you know, this sort of collective they are doing. Right. But we, but the real focus needs to be on what we do. Yeah. We need to do something. And, and, and it doesn't, and that can mean a lot of different things, but it really has to be something. Yeah. You know, there, and really it's a, it's a change in mindset to think about, to change the focus of the attention into what actions am I taking and what am I doing in my own life versus what am I always building? worrying about what's being taken from me by them. Right. For me, it's just, you know, I vote every once every four years and that's sort of like, that's the extent of my political activity. So I'm, I'm pretty much done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, there's a, uh, I have another thing in Jacobin coming out about King Lud that sort of is a um, in the Luddites who like invented their own sort of like character for that. It's fun to think about and also have great conversations. When's that coming out in Jacobin? I have no idea. They don't tell me. Oh, okay. So you get surprised like everybody else does. Yeah, it's great. (laughs) They're... They're throwing a wooden shoe yeah, in your planning. I'm being I'm being oppressed over here. They're strategically withholding information. I think you need a percentage of ownership. I agree. I'm gonna tell Bashkar Sankara that you said that. I don't know if that was We need profit sharing. We need profit sharing. Well, what do you guys think? I think we're in a good spot. I think we're good. I think that's a good, that's a good, uh, stop ender. I think we podcasted just now. Uh, Yeah. I feel, I feel like I podcasted. (laughs) I feel like I podcasted. (laughs) Yeah. You definitely, you, you seemed like you you were really podcasting there for a while. We can podcast, you know, I can can ramble (laughs) on it. Well, before we uh, say our goodbyes and thank you so much for coming on the show, uh, where, uh, why don't you let everybody know where people can find you? 
Uh, I'm at Devin T. O'Shea on all of the things like Instagram and Twitter. And if Twitter's around anymore, um, yeah, that's the best place to find my writing. And definitely people should check out your TikTok. Oh yeah. Is that the same, is that the same handle? Same handle. Yeah. All right. Yeah. The, the, the TikTok is great because you'll have a piece come out and then you'll, you'll do a couple of videos where you're talking about things about that piece. And that's, that's really good stuff. I'm, I'm glad that's working. I need that feedback because I, I'm not a person that appears on camera. Well, I'm, I don't like, I don't like being on camera, but I will, I'll make the TikToks. I'll do the dance, whatever. <laughs> it, it, it is working. <laughs> it, is, it is interesting. And I think it's great to, uh, to, to hear your voice explaining it too, because you, the, it is a, yeah, because you are the one that wrote the thing. Tell, hearing you tell the story is, is very good. Yeah, I definitely enjoy it. It really gives I us some I understand the uh, I understand the resistance. Yeah, the, uh, we've been uh, dragging our heels about doing a uh, doing at least a biweekly live stream, and Ugh. it's just uh, uh, you know, it would be honestly, it would be this. Right, it would just be this. I mean, it would be nothing. I mean, that would I can ignore though. what's going on in chat. I don't need to talk to anybody in chat. Yeah. You know, like I don't have to do all that stuff. We could just do this, you know, but no, I think we it still is, haven't quite engaged. Yeah. I, it's just the times we live in, you know, people want to see your face. They want to see you on camera and like interact with you and stuff. And I, I can appreciate that. I'm not a curmudgeon who's like, I don't do the TikTok. I'm maybe if I was like a senior sort of like Harper's magazine, person i would just be like fuck take that i'm not even learning that but no way right. we got to scrap <laughs> we're down here in the trenches it's true yeah <laughs> we we we, we got to taylor That's swift right. our way through we're gonna be as big as her eventually too so get ready and <laughs> and god bless the queen <laughs> all right well thank you very much for for coming and talking to us Devin. it was really this, this was a yeah, great thanks. chat and I'm really glad to came. It's it's been yeah, so thank wonderful. Thank you for having me, and thanks for doing all the great work you guys are doing. I'm I'm a big fan of the pod. I appreciate that. That's that's really awesome. Huzzah! Huzzah! Yeah, that's. I'm gonna write that down, and I'm gonna tell my Do friends it. and my mother. <laughs> tell your mother I said hello. Devin says we're good. <laughs> All right, everybody. Thank you again for joining us for another episode of WetWire. You can support us and get extra premium episodes by subscribing on Patreon. And if you remember, you can also get a free trial. So basically, you can just listen to everything we've ever made and then cancel. The whole thing. Just binge watch in seven days. Yeah, you can binge listen to the whole thing. (laughs) There's like 20 episodes. (laughs) And that is at patreon.com slash WetWire. You can also check us out on Twitter and Instagram at WetWiredPod. And of course, uh, don't forget the Discord. I was going to say, of course, we've got the Discord. So uh, you can you can check. Do it. It's growing. It's growing. And, and I will I will uh, periodically drop interesting articles that typically preview whatever I'm researching at the moment. So you usually get kind of a sneak peek into into what's coming up. All right. Until next time. Later, skaters.
You know her as Erin from The Office and the unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. Now St. Louis and Ellie Kemper is at the center of a new controversy surrounding one of her hometown's oldest traditions. The actress's coronation as queen of a veiled profit ball back in 1999 has many questioning the 143-year-old secret society. Five on your side's Abby Larico has more on its history and its role in St. Louis today. Social media slamming a St. Louis sweetheart. Ellie Kemper, KKK prom queen? You get on Twitter and that's a great place to fire off a hot take, but it might not really dive into the complexity that an issue like this deserves. Historian Adam Cloppy has studied the Veiled Profit organization, which named Kemper its debutante queen in 1999. She's one of more than 130 well-to-do young women to wear the crown since 1878. Inspired by New Orleans Mardi Gras crews and a character in a poem, the Veiled Profit organization was established in response to major labor strikes that shut down the city and the threat of black and white workers uniting. In 1878, the city's elites wanted to sort of take the power of the city back. They wanted to show that they were still the people in control of the city. So they organized this parade and debutante ball. The organization brands itself a social and philanthropic group and maintains their initial goal was to plan events to draw visitors to St. Louis. Back when these sorts of things set the social calendar, the VP's debutante, Queen of Love and Beauty, reigned supreme. The VP parade, the event of the summer for some of the city. It is tied up with the history of class, elitism, money in, in St. Louis. And those issues, you can't extricate race from those issues. 